Welcome to Spiritual Warfare Part 3. Let it begin. Um, the subtitle for today is, It Is What It Is. Because last week we looked at, It Ain't What It Ain't. Um, today we're going to try to get past all of the pseudo-spiritual nonsense that's being perpetrated against us by so many televangelists. And we're going to try to actually examine the schemes and the wiles of the devil and we're going to try to ascertain where the spiritual battle truly lies. And more importantly, what we can do about it. So let's start with prayer, shall we? Father, we are grateful for the chance to gather together this morning to uh, worship our Redeemer united, to celebrate our redemption united through the observance of communion where we all join in together to, sh to thank you for your great gift and sacrifice for us. We gather to encourage, to equip one another, to bear one another's burdens, to laugh and cry and, and live life together, to grow in the knowledge of your word and to grow in our faith together. And as we hear the words that are found, the words of truth that are found in your word, may we also grow in wisdom and discernment, that we learn how to apply what we learn, we learn how to apply the truth to our lives so that we can become better ambassadors, best, best, better shiners of the light of the gospel for the glory of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen. So we've looked at uh, the last couple of weeks, the kind of the foundation, the, the basis of spiritual warfare, how the devil at some point fairly early in the post-creation world, uh, sometime between uh, uh, day seven and the, the serpent's entry into the garden, how the devil just kind of got full of himself. He was overcome by his own beauty. He was enraptured with his sweet, sweet baritone voice. Probably his head full of luxuriant hair and his squared, dimpled chin. He was admired. He was respected. He was looked up to by the fellow angels. And he thought, I am pretty magnificent. I mean, that God over there, he's not so special. I'm as good as he is. I'm as smart as he is. I can be like God. And so be smitten with self-love and his enormous pride. The devil led this angelic revolt against the very God who created him in the first place. And it turns out he was not like God at all. Uh, his rebellion was quickly defeated. He was kicked out of the, the heavens along with his duped and sycophantic angelic followers. His pride literally led to his fall no doubt the source of that phrase. And ever since, his job and the job of his demonic followers has been to thwart the will of God, to seek revenge of sorts, to attempt to undo whatever God has done and whatever God is doing. And so for us to truly understand spiritual warfare, we need to know or understand the nature of our enemy. And we spent time there. He's described in various places as powerful, but not as powerful as God. He is intelligent, but not as intelligent as God. He is, however, called a liar and a tempter and a deceiver and an intimidator, uh, a murderer, a schemer, an accuser, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, he's an opportunist. opportunist. I, I think you see the line here. He's just not a good dude. And we need to be aware of the fact uh, of who Satan is and what his job is. So as followers of Christ, we need to be aware of his existence and his tactics. 
because we don't want to fall into one of the two great errors to overstate the power and influence of Satan or to understate the power and influence of Satan. Either can be dangerous for our own physical and spiritual and emotional well-being. And what we're seeing is a big part, an increasingly big part of his playbook for the church is to get us to overstate his importance so that we have developed these so-called deliverance ministries whereby we can learn to square off, go toe-to-toe with the devil like a spiritual mixed martial arts contest. We're given these special words and phrases and prayers, powerful prayers of binding and rebuking. Now, interesting, outside of the church environment, when we look at this special collection of phrases and incantations, we might think of them as some kind of witchcraft, spellbinding. In fact, we're not real Christians, we're told, unless we're binding and demanding or proclaiming one thing or another. Or at least, you know, we're lesser Christians. We're not quite as enlightened as the supernaturally supercharged demon fighters and spiritual order, spiritual warriors on TBN or whoever else hosts those things. We, we've got so-called Christian leaders like the videos we saw last week. Don't worry, parents, no videos like that this week. Kids are safe. Um, like the, the, the people we saw in the video last week and, and many, many, many others trying to convince us that they are the great dragon slayers and we can be too. Or they're asserting that their control over the the devil and and his demons by binding them or exercising them, even interviewing them. This happens a lot. Forcing them to reveal deep, dark, demonic secrets about, you know, the demon hierarchy, how they function, how their barracks work. We're, We're given information about territorial demonic organization charts. Who's in charge of who? Several people pointed out to me last week, by the way, that there are no angels assigned to Benton City, so I don't know what that... I don't know what that's about, but I was told. Um, but we're told that by, by using these uh, controlling phrases, like, I command you by the blood of Jesus, you know, demon named Mopar, get out of that carburetor. <laughs> and... And if you haven't heard this, I mean, what I'm saying is true. Much of what's being taught by these false teachers, and yes, I am calling them out as false teachers, much of what they're teaching, they say they learned from demons by asking them. The names of demons, their ranks and their structure. I mean, all kinds of information we're getting from demons to help make us better prepared, right? Here's the problem. The devil and his demons are liars. Why would we believe anything they tell us? Why would we believe anything they say, much less base a whole area of ministry on it, around it? So if one of the devil's goals is to get us to overstate his importance so as to shift focus away from Jesus and towards the devil, if that's his goal, it seems like a pretty good plan would be to concoct this story of the you know, the 3rd Battalion of Demonic Assault Rangers on how they're assigned to infiltrate and control Beirut or Wapato or whatever. Just give us a story that we can focus on. And then we can get these great pseudo-Christian demon hunters to believe it. And why would we believe anything they say? We have the truth of God's word here. Why would we believe what they tell us when we have truth here? So much of this extra-biblical, supernatural hogwash 
Am I being clear enough in my feelings about this? Much of this, I believe, is a grand scheme of the devil to pull a big old magic trick. This is sleight of hand. Look at what I'm doing over here. Isn't this fascinating? Ooh, look how you're controlling me, you big, powerful Christian, you. See how good about you feel about your power over me? Ooh, I'm being weakened as you bind me again. Oh, that hedge that's so unattractive and thorny. You win. I surrender. While my real goal is being achieved over here. While I'm, you're, you're pretend casting out demons over here and you look powerful and flashy. While I'm quietly whispering false prophecies in your ear about election results. I'm fueling your pride and arrogance over here that will lead you into sexual sin or financial improprieties or failed relationships or, or, or whatever it is that's going to make the church look bad and cause believers to doubt. Now, for the overwhelming majority of us, the real battle, the real spiritual battle lies not in the spiritual realm out there where we have little to no control, but the real battle lies in us. And the Bible is pretty clear that our battle lines, what we actually deal with, our battle lines are threefold. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sin of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you can find this in other places too. So I'm not just cherry picking verses, just so you know. You can research this and figure it out. But our, our primary lines of battle are the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what we're going to fight. We're going to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, and their respective impacts on us. And when we focus exclusively on one, we kind of leave the other unprotected, unguarded. We're spiritually off balance and susceptible to attack. So we're going to take a quick look at these. The devil, we've pretty well covered at this point. We know who and what he is. Um, when we see the use of the world in Scripture, it can mean a couple of things. Sometimes it means just the earth, the planet itself. Sometimes it's a reference to the people of the earth, as in God so loved the world. He didn't love the dirt. He loved the people on the world. And then there's the third use here, which means the, the systems of the world, the, the morals, all, all the things that we've developed, our culture, how we live life. The whole environment that is currently controlled by the devil and his cohorts. He's referred to here as the prince of the power of the air. We see again in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He's the little g, little g God of this world. After his expulsion from heaven, he's sent to earth where he now has a certain amount of control and influence before Jesus comes back for the second and final time to put an end to it. But because the devil is all of the things we've already talked about, his influence over the world looks a lot like him. Evil of every kind. And he has blinded the minds of the unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So consequently... His goal is to get lots of people to reject and rebel against God, to deny Jesus, and act the way he acts. 
to do the things that he does. Which, as I think I said last week, that's really the best explanation for the world that we live in. So we get this picture here of the light of the glory of Christ shining in a big old sea of darkness. Which most people ignore. They're, they're blinded to the light. Which is why humanity can be a real mess. It has always been and will always continue to be. We are not progressing to be better humans. We're progressing to find better ways of mistreating each other. I mean, we live in a time now, increasingly, where what God says is good, we say is bad, and where what God says is bad, we say it's pretty good. So the world is kind of the, the, the sum total of the larger influence of the devil. Now, we can have discussions about what some of our systemic cultural issues may be, but we desperately avoid the one systemic issue we know we have, and that's a systemic sin problem, which manifests itself in various ways. Because the devil does not want the light of the gospel to penetrate the darkness of evil. So that's the world system. Now, we also have a pretty good idea of what we mean when we talk about the flesh, because we all fight it every day. Sometimes we fight it every hour of every, every day, and sometimes we fight it every minute of every hour of every day. We fight the flesh. But just to recap, we, we saw this um, in our romp, quick romp through Galatians chapter 5. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dimensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Not an exhaustive list, just kind of a representative sampling. Things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you notice that this list of deplorables starts with, and these are evident. These are obvious. These are plain for us all to see. These are, these are common things that people get involved in. These are pervasive. We all know about all the things on this list because we're born in sin. This is our inherited nature. And left to our own devices and left to our own nature we're going to gladly join in some or all of these activities. Even though it ends with, if you do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we reject the light of the gospel and we embrace our sin nature. And therein lies the rub for most of us, this tension. Our natural tendency, which we inherited from Adam, is to reject God and to presume that we can take his place ourselves. We can be our own God. We can make our own decisions about right and wrong. And just because God says they're bad, I deem them good. And so we naturally do these things all on our own with little to no help from the devil. The devil cannot make us sin. We make the choice to sin or not sin. However, he is quite skilled at tempting us to sin. You know the old saying, he can't make us drink, but he's really good at getting us to the sin trough. And the devil is wily and crafty and clever and cunning, but ultimately kind of predictable. I mean, his plan is really pretty simple. It's incredibly effective, as the best plans are, but it's really pretty simple. 
And if we know it, we can deal with it. At least be prepared to try to deal with it. His first tactic is try to get us to sin. In whatever way he can. And the approach he takes for you might be a little different than for me. It might be a little different for somebody else. He wants to get us to ignore the gospel completely and do whatever it is we want to do and he wants us to do. Because if it feels good, we should just do it. Right? Come on. God didn't really say you can't eat that fruit. He didn't mean that. That wasn't his intent. You work hard. You're a good guy. You've earned sin X. You deserve this one little break. And remember, he, he knows our weaknesses, not because of any godlike attributes on his part, but because we all have patterns. We all have weaknesses that we struggle with. And he watches, he observes. And we're going to be tempted in those areas. But I'll say it again. He can't force us to sin. We have a choice to make. He will do everything in his limited power to get us to that, to that point, and he will not stop. He might pause for a while. He might change focus. He might come at us from a different direction, but his goal is to get us to sin. Now keep in mind that any sin on our part, whether it's big or small, as we like to categorize them, any sin on our part, the devil sees as a victory. From his perspective, from the enemy of God's perspective, any step backwards away from holiness on our part is a step away from God himself and a step towards the devil. And so he wins, he thinks. In that moment, anyway, he wins. But the choice is still ours. But he sees any fault on our part as a victory for himself. And frankly, I kind of use that information personally every once in a while. When I, when I, when I am tempted in some area, or I'm feeling down, or feeling weak, or whatever, and I feel temptation coming my way, I think, or sometimes I even say out loud, not this time, devil. You're not going to win today. You're not going to win right now. With the, Holy, with the power of the Holy Spirit, not this time. Now, I try to make sure I'm not at the checkout at the food depot when I say that out loud. <laughs> it tends to, uh, that unnerves them more than unmasked people. But I find, I find this helpful for me. Um, if any of you have read anything about Martin Luther, you know he had full-on monologues against the devil, calling names and assorted other various ways of attacking. But I find that helpful. Now, I, I'd love to tell you that it works every time, and I have not sinned since the seventh grade. <laughs> but by saying that, I will have lied and lost this round and you would know that I was lying anyway. It would become a whole thing, and so it just doesn't. But acknowledging even these small little victories or even defeats can be helpful for us. All right, I lost this one, but next time I'm going to see it coming because the devil wants us to sin. And whether we pass or fail this get-us-to-sin test, he's not worried yet. Again, if you read screw tape letters, you know, they just keep moving from it. Okay, if that doesn't work, then move on to this thing, and then move on to this thing. If he doesn't get us to sin, then he moves on to tactic two, where Satan transitions from the tempter to the accuser. Well, maybe you didn't sin this time. 
maybe you didn't disobey your parents today, but you've done it a lot of times in the past. You may be the world's worst third grader. You're just no good. Remember that time when you had too many drinks last night or last week or, or the week before and the week before? God can't use drunks. You're through. You might as well quit trying. I mean, you didn't click under those nudie sites today, but you've done it so many times before. God can't forgive you for that. He can't possibly forgive you for that. He can't forgive you for how you treat your wife or your husband. He can't forgive you for lying or cheating or stealing or whatever it is we've done in the past. He is the accuser of the brethren. And this tactic is surprisingly effective. It is surprisingly effective because... We know. I mean, we know we have sinned. And we start to wonder at some point if our tendency to keep sinning maybe means we're not really saved at all. Anybody get that accusation before more than once? Maybe we are even unsavable. And we fall prey to doubt serious doubt and that gives way to guilt and and, and failure and despondency which is exactly the opposite of the joy that comes from the Lord tactic one can be more powerful than tactic two can be more powerful than tactic one even if we don't yield to temptation this time we can still fall as a result of the fiery darts of accusation now the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so as to lead us to repentance and forgiveness. John 16, for example. And if we're being honest, it can sometimes be hard to tell the difference between the accusation of the enemy from the true conviction of the Holy Spirit. Um, One is designed to destroy us. The other is designed to heal us. How do we tell the difference? We struggle knowing that we have sinned. Maybe this will be helpful for us. When we consider an accusation from the enemy, he tends to use our sin against us in a hateful and hurtful way. You are not good enough. You'll never be good enough. God doesn't love you. You are unlovable. Versus the conviction of the Holy Spirit that uses the word of God in love. God does love you. He will forgive your sins. He sent his son to die for you. The enemy says you are hopeless and helpless. Just give up. The Holy Spirit says, there is hope. You can be healed. The enemy wants to get us to focus exclusively on us. While the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on the grace of God in spite of us. The enemy separates us from the cross. The Holy Spirit moves us towards the cross. The enemy wants us to feel regret and remorse. The Holy Spirit says, yes, there should be regret and remorse, but it should move you to repentance and the enemy just seeks to move us away from the Lord while the Holy Spirit wants to move us closer to the Lord now we can all sit here this morning sitting in church and you know relatively clean and dressed up feeling pretty spiritual and we look at this and think this makes perfect sense but we're in, when we're in the midst of an attack when we're in the midst of an accusation, 
in the middle of pangs of guilt or even just awareness of our own sinfulness, it can start to get a little fuzzy and we can start to move into depression and, and frustration and more to the enemy camp. The lines can be blurred as to whether this is the Holy Spirit or the devil and we need sometimes clearer vision to help. Which is why I think the Lord gives us verses like Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This starts to help us understand the nature of what we're experiencing. If we're feeling accused and condemned rather than loved and forgiven, then we don't need to listen to that voice. That's not the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what Satan says about you. It doesn't matter what he accuses us of. He is a liar after all. Even if we've done all of the things he said we've done, our situation is never hopeless. We are never helpless. God's word says our sins can be forgiven. The Lord will not continue to hold our sins over our head. So the, the guilt and the fear, the accusation has to be coming from somewhere else. Now the good news, the great news for us is that we don't have to be sinless. We don't have to be good. We don't even have to be good enough. We just have to accept forgiveness and allow the Holy Spirit to come in and help us change. Help us begin the transition to move away from the old sin nature and move towards holiness. And the only power the devil has in this whole arrangement is what we allow him. What we yield to him. This is the real battle. This is the arena of spiritual warfare for most of us. It's a battle for the hearts and minds of God's creation. Satan would like nothing better than to keep people away from Jesus at all, tactic one, or to cause Jesus believers to stumble, to fall, to doubt, to drift away, tactic two. And he's been at this a long time, and he's pretty good at it. So we need to understand what the real fight is so we are prepared to fight back appropriately. When we waste time and energy fighting the wrong things, like we talked about last week, we stay distracted and confused and unaware of what the devil's really doing. When we fight the wrong battle with the wrong weapons, we end up more distracted and more disappointed and more defeated. And this is the context, you see, for all the biblical teaching on spiritual warfare. For the Jesus follower, our battle is not a battle for territory or control over demons or showing the devil who's boss. It's a battle for the soul. It's a battle for our sanctification. It's not shifting the blame for our sin to the devil. It is understanding our own nature, understanding the goals of the devil, and understanding the power that we are given to defeat him so that we can fight the right fight the right way. Well, if the devil has a battle plan, should we have one? Yes, we should. We need to understand that the devil... That our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil? All right, check. We got that one. We need to remember that God is sovereign, almighty creator, and the devil is not his equal. Check. We got that one. Then we need to look to see what the word of God has to say in this regard. How are we to fight back? If the, if the devil wants to keep us away from the light of the gospel, it seems like that's exactly where we ought to go. And you start to find that temptation is a part of life. It is a part of every life. Jesus was tempted. You remember after his baptism, Jesus went into the desert where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. 40 days. 
Jesus did not yield to temptation for 40 days. And how often do we pat ourselves on the back and think, man, we've nailed it after 40 minutes. (laughs) So how did Jesus fight off this temptation for 40 days? What was his secret? How did he accomplish this great spiritual feat? Well, Luke is pretty clear. It says Jesus walks out into the desert yelling, Satan, I bind thee. Thou art bound. Further, thou shalt notice this lovely multi-level hedge that I have erected around me. Thou art bound and I am hedged. And finally, I plead the blood of Jesus. Wait, I have not bled yet. It can't be that. I know I curse thee, Satan, and thy generations. Three generations. Nay, four generations art thou cursed. And the number of generations of cursing shall be four, not five. Five is right out. It's not what he did. So what did he do? What is our example? Well, it turns out Jesus quoted scripture. He fought the lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. And Luke, we're given three specific examples of very specific temptations and Jesus' response to those temptations. And three times, Jesus quoted Old Testament scripture, or as they called it, scripture. Jesus used God's words as his primary defense. Perhaps that's why we're instructed in Psalm 119, I've stored, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's power in the word. To defeat a liar, blast him with the truth. Read it. Learn it. Live it. Use it. We also see, as we start to look at tactics and tools, that according to the word of truth, we're told to remember that we are not fighting alone. It's okay for us to call for reinforcements. We should pray. You remember in Luke that Jesus told Peter that Satan had asked to sift him like wheat. Again, the devil had to ask for permission. He can't just go around doing things. Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. And we know that after a stumble or two, Peter stood strong. He regrouped. We know that in the garden, Jesus prayed for us. He asked his father, he asked our father, not to take us out of the world, but that the father would keep us from the evil one. Prayer has power over the devil. Romans 8.33 says, Even now Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Satan is not bigger or more powerful than Jesus, and we have Jesus in our corner. That ought to help reduce our stress level just a little bit. We know that once we have received the salvation and the redemption of Christ, we also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into truth. So if we're moving towards truth, if if the Spirit is moving us towards truth, it necessarily means we're being led away from evil. We're being led away from the devil and his lies. 
So if we listen to and follow the Spirit, we're being led away from the tempters. Now, we have to admit that this is a process. Our natural bent is still towards rebellion. We train ourselves to listen and follow the Spirit. And that comes through some trial and error. That also comes through reading the Word and praying, which came before. These all start to work together. Well, then we see in James 4, 7, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So, I know what most of you, well, maybe what some of you are thinking, because I thought the same thing again. Resist? I mean, that seems a little simplistic, right? Just resist? Just say no to the devil? How did that work out for Nancy Reagan's drug campaign? But here's the thing. What was the cause of the devil's downfall? His pride. He hates to lose. He hates rejection. When he tempts us to sin, and we do, it's a win for him. But when he tempts us to sin, and we don't, it's a loss. It's a defeat. And you know what makes it even worse? When we reject him, when we refuse to sin, and we draw closer to God. But the order is important here. First, we submit to God and his word. Then we're better equipped to resist the devil. Then we have the truth of God's word to teach us. Then we have Jesus interceding on our behalf, praying for us. Then we have the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us away from sin so that we can resist. Now, I would wager a small portion of my record collection. I'm not a big gambler, but I would wager a small portion of my record collection that if you've been a believer for very long, you have experienced resistance. You've seen the fruit of resistance. I mean, when when, when Satan attacks you at your most vulnerable point, your greatest weakness, and you stand firm and you don't sin, well, he'll come at you again. And then he'll do it again. And then probably again. But at some point, you start to notice, you know, that particular temptation, that seems to have eased a bit. It's been a while since I've even thought about sin X. It's because you've resisted. And he's fled. But don't get too cocky. He'll be back. But you begin to see this biblical pattern emerge regarding your personal, supernatural encounters, and that is that they are almost exclusively defensive in nature. Like soul preservation rather than attack and conquer the devil. 1 Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Because the devil prowls around like a lion. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith. This is not a lesson on how to kill stuff and mount a lion's head. We are told to be on guard, to 
understand how all of this works. But more importantly, stay faithful. Stand firm. Now we'll see a little more of this over the next few months, but we can't talk about spiritual warfare and not mention Ephesians 6. We know about, we've heard about the the full armor of God, and this has led some to suggest that we are, in fact, God's warriors out to do battle with the enemy. We're geared up to lead the charge, to bind and rebuke and demand and command. Let's look at verse 10, which is the lead-in verse to the armor section. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's the lead-in. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. So the first instruction we get is, whatever strength we have, whatever combat wisdom we may possess, comes from the Lord. It's more his battle than ours. Well, then it goes on to say, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the wiles, the craftiness of the devil. Verse 13 says, put on the armor of God to withstand the evil and to stand firm. This all sounds entirely defensive. The purpose of the armor is to help us withstand the attack of the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces of evil, to help keep us rooted in the truth of the gospel, to to persevere, to stay strong. It is not a call to bind, rebuke, command, or destroy the enemy. That's not our primary focus. And not surprisingly, when you look at the the armor of God, it's pretty much everything we've already discussed. Just in more interesting language. The belt of truth. Well, the truth of God's words helps us to, to discern the lies that are being thrown at us. The truth of God's word helps us, helps build us up and keep us standing firm. The breastplate of righteousness is to fend off the desires of the flesh. The shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts. A strong faith diminishes the attacks of the devil. The helmet of salvation so we can take every thought captive. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And that's followed immediately by the command to load up the catapult and hurl fiery fiery stones back at the devil so we can fight fire with fire. It says the sword of the spirit, and then it says pray. At all times, in the spirit. So this is all about training us up to be not so much God's warriors, but training us up to be defenders of the faith. Our own faith. We are defenders of our own faith, and then as we go stronger in our faith, we're better equipped to help others in their own defense. We are geared up to resist the devil and draw near to God so that we can help others resist the devil and draw near to God. We don't have to engage in hand-to-hand combat with the devil, though it may feel like it at times. We just don't need to. He's been defeated. His revolt was put down. And he'll be defeated again. Whatever measure of success he has now, he's going to be defeated again at the return of Jesus. But he's lost the war. We know how it ends. But we don't want to make the mistake of understating his importance either. He still prowls around. He's still waiting for our weakness, so we are to always be on guard. So all these so-called deliverance ministries all focus on the wrong thing. They're fighting the wrong fight. What the world needs 
is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not a lesson on how to tie spiritual knots to keep demons bound. The world needs gospel-based, battle-dressed believers in the Ephesians 6 style who are bold proclaimers of the truth. People who stand firm in the face of hopelessness and despair. Not perfect people, but forgiven people who are working towards perfection. We're not called to fight the devil directly, but we're still called to action. There are things we are called to do. Like in Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. So we're supposed to strive for peace and holiness. We're called to be holy, for God is holy. When we accept God's gift of salvation, we're considered holy. He sees us as holy, which then creates in us a desire to be how God sees us, or at least keep us moving in that direction. But even as we strive for holiness, we continue to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we stumble. But we know, we count on, we trust that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just. He'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one of the reasons we take communion on a regular basis, to remind us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. That Satan may have won a battle or two this week, but he will not win the war. His defeat was sealed with Jesus' death on the cross, and the devil knew he was ultimately conquered when the tomb was found empty. So we take communion in part to remember the great sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. He shed his blood for us. His sides were pierced for us. We do it to remember his great love for us. But we also take communion in part to remind us that we are sinners by nature and by choice and to remind us that we are called to strive for peace and holiness. So over these next few minutes, we're going to use this time to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin not to accuse us of things, but to lead us to repentance so that we can repent and ask for help for the future, for whatever skirmish we may have with the devil, even on the way home. Isn't it funny how often that happens on the way to church or the way home? But communion reminds us of the hope we find in the cross, the help we find in the Spirit, and that it all flows from the love of the Father. So we're going to I'm going to pray. We're going to ask the worship team to come up. We'll sing a song as the elements are passed out. Um, And if you'll hold it, then we'll take it all together once it's all passed out. Father, again, we're grateful for the chance to gather this morning for the the clarity of your word. When, when When we read it with the idea of wanting to hear what you have to say rather than trying to make it fit what we want to hear, Lord, it seems, it seems so clear. And I pray that you keep us from deception. I pray that you keep us from our own tendency to read into Scripture, to prove things we want to prove, or to okay things that we want to okay. Lord, you give us clarity as we read and study. I pray that you give us accountability with each other, that if we're not certain about uh, a, a life choice or about a, a, an understanding of a verse that we have, have people we can call out and, and people we can ask 
uh, and we, we enjoy the full benefit of this life lived together in community. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and how we can look at even this small body and see so many people from so many different backgrounds and so many different walks of life. We may have very few other things in common, but we can gather around the cross of Christ and know that if, if, if nothing else, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And you died for us. You gave us a chance at redemption. And for that, we are grateful.